good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are. If you're on the other side of midnight, you're at the right place because that's where we are, too. That really interesting time between dusk and dawn where you can talk about all kinds of things that are not or used to not. I should say that more accurately. They used to not be permitted during daytime. It was like, oh, no, you can't bring that up. That's, that's, that's uh, Art Bell's type, type stuff. Tonight, we're going to go into what did happen in Helsinki. I mean, really, nobody knows except for four people on the entire planet. And four of those people are not taught well. Maybe three and a half are not talking. The Russians, a la Putin, seem to be putting out certain press releases, but it would be really nice to know what did happen in that two hours and 10 minutes, 130 minutes in total, we were told uh, that, that afternoon, several times. Now they just say more than two hours, but I thought it was very interesting that apropos of our discussion last night, it actually was billed as lasting 130 minutes, which if you knock off the zeros, it's another 13. Anyway, before we get into um, this in some depth, let me call your attention to a couple of interesting news items. Again, go to theothersideofmidnight.com. That's our homepage website, theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on tonight's graphic, which is that picture of uh, the president sitting there making a very interesting hand gesture. I want you to kind of look at that hand gesture. If you Google uh, Trump's pictures and you Google Angela Merkel's pictures, and there's one other, I can't remember who that is at the moment, you'll find them in public settings repeatedly over years. And, and with Trump, this goes back decades, making this very interesting hand gesture which looks like an inverted A, or you could think of it's someone steepling their fingers between their knees. And in this particular setting at the Helsinki conference, all the time they were sitting there with Putin kind of slouching back, kind of really relaxed, uh, the president was sitting forward and he made sure that when he would move his hand to gesture, he'd bring it back and then he would actually diddle his fingers in a kind of a little subconscious nervous motion, but it's always in the same geometry. I find that rather interesting. Anyway, let me let me go to a couple of headlines. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on that graphic, that will take you to tonight's guest page, to Dr. Spence's page. Scroll down in radio with pictures to my items. And number one is just something that's so cool. This is, of course, the um, 49th anniversary weekend of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon in the summer of 1969. Left on July 16th. Oh, wait, wait, that rings a bell. That's the same day that Trump and Putin met. Hmm, interesting. Got to the moon on the 19th, landed on the 20th, which was two days ago in our calendar now. And then last night, um, during our anniversary show, in part, uh, was the night that uh, the uh, astronauts climbed into the lunar module for the last time. Actually, they were sleeping in the lunar module. They'd already climbed in before. And they lifted off, rendezvoused with the command module. And I think today is the anniversary of when they started home. Uh, 
the three days falling home out of the gravity field of the moon. This little video I've got up there called the Saturn V story uh, is really, really cool. It's got some astonishing, incredibly high-res, color, high-fidelity imagery from NASA from these launches. It's basically the development of the rocket and by ancillary metonymy, the spacecraft, the LEM and the command module that got us to and from the moon. And it's really interesting to see these pictures. And of course, they make big, big um, uh, deal out of some of the uh, uh, launches like Apollo 4. I remember Apollo 4 vividly because by some amazing, I'm still not sure how I did it. I was able to wangle being this young, not dry behind the eyes curator in New England, in Springfield, Massachusetts. I somehow was able to wangle an invitation from NASA headquarters to be a VIP and to fly to Cape Canaveral and to see the first launch of the Saturn V on Apollo 4 in November of 1967. And I got to ask Werner von Braun at the press conference a crucial question. And I've always wondered, I haven't actually ever taken the time to go look, but I've always wondered now with Google and all that, if one could find the film clip, the, the snippet of me standing up in front of the World Press Corps and asking Von Braun, it turns out to be the most important question of the entire Apollo 4 adventure. I guess unless I go to NASA headquarters and look through miles and miles and miles of film, um, I'll never know, but it's, it's there somewhere. And the question, in case anybody wants to know, I asked him was, given the rather extraordinary visually dynamic uh, development of rockets over the preceding decades, with them going up and sideways and blowing up and coming down, and I mean, it was an incredible, spectacular pyrotechnic display of rocketry to the development of the Saturn V. I asked him that afternoon why this mission, which hadn't left yet, is still sitting on the pad, was so uneventful that the countdown had been perfect, the, the pre-assembly of the vehicle had been perfect, the testing leading up had been excellent. And he looked at me and he said, he expanded on this, but he looked at me and he said one word, computers. Remember, this is 1967. Your wristwatch now, your Apple wristwatch, has more computer power than the entire Saturn V lunar module command module stack did in 1967 your watch but he said computers and it's true so anyway you know i'm 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 wallowing in nostalgia tonight because i can remember vividly where i was 49 years ago tonight two nights after we landed on the moon and the folks i was hanging out with like um robert heinlein and uh, a guy named um picard and no, not the guy that played in Star Trek, the, the, the real Picard, the one who was the oceanographer and deep sea diver and who was kind of in competition with Jacques Cousteau, that Picard. Anyway, uh, enough nostalgia. Interesting of space, you know, conversations, item number two, on the night we landed on the moon, which is Friday night in this calendar, the Russians took to raiding one of their space research centers looking for treason. 
treasonous personnel attached to one of their major space development centers having to do with this leak to the West. This is now after the Putin-Trump meeting of um, rocket technology, uh, hypersonic vehicle technology coming out of uh, uh, Roscosmos, which is their equivalent of, of NASA. Just found it interesting. Just two or three days. I thought that uh, you know Vladimir and, and Donald were such good friends, but the Russians are raiding their own space facility looking for Western spies. Well, that doesn't behoove uh, the, the new relationship uh, very well, does it? Anyway, I could go on, but I don't want to go on because I want to, you know, kind of show. Oh, I do have one more thing I should mention. If you skip number three, which we'll get back to in a minute, and look at item number four, President George Herbert Walker Bush's cardiologist in Houston was killed a couple of days ago in the most bizarre fashion. Literally, a guy on a bicycle driving by him on a bike path turned around, according to eyewitnesses, pulled a gun out of his inside you know, uh, uh, jacket pocket and shot the doctor twice in the back, killing him, and then drove off on a bicycle. It was a, dry, it was a bicycle drive-by. Bush's cardiologist. I mean, one can only wonder what did what did he know? Now, if you go and read the story, you'll see at the end all kind of comments. Oh, he was cheating on his wife, or oh, it was a you know a disgruntled patient, which of course uh, would be kind of weird if the disgruntled patient had died, or a family member you know taking revenge because of a, something, but. Nobody seems to, in the mainstream, kind of connect the idea that here was a guy who has kept the former head of the CIA alive, you know, the, what is it, 41, 41st president of the United States. And this is just, you know, another one of those things in politics where coincidence boggles the mind. Who wanted to, in the outmost outer range of speculation, who wanted to shut this doctor up now and why? Anyway, we're not going to answer that tonight, so let me uh, introduce my guest. Dr. Richard Spence is professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works, which are listed further down on the page, include Boris uh, Sakhanov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, the Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666 Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. He's author of you know, all kinds of books. We could you know, spend all the time talking about all the books he's written. And he's been interviewed on a whole range of you know, media, including the History Channel. But right now, he is on the other side of midnight. Richard, are you there? I am here, Richard. Well, where should we dive in? I mean, since you and I set this up, which was to talk about Helsinki, let me let me skip to the end of the current you know narrative. Suddenly, out of the blue, literally, where his uh, director of national intelligence is on television, being interviewed live by Andrea Mitchell, the president tweets that he's inviting Putin to come to Washington this fall. I mean the 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 cataclysm of Helsinki 
in the minds of a lot of people and in the news and in mainstream media had not even died away before the second invite. I mean, obviously he's doing this to antagonize everybody who said, what the hell's going on? But literally, Richard, let me start out. What the hell's going on? What the hell's going on? Well, in terms of inviting Putin to Washington, uh, that seems an polite statesman-like thing to do. What's the problem with that? Well, A, I mean, I mean, normally yeah. there's a decent interval where you see if the stuff you talked about and agreed to do in the first meeting uh, is actually done. But since we well, don't know any specifics from the first meeting because it was two hours and ten minutes in a locked yeah. room with only two other people, I mean, it's like – it, it, it's like throwing everything up in the air and just watching it come down. Well, they used to call that well, a 52 pickup. Well, we'll sort of maybe we'll come back to this, but you know, since we'll get around to this question sooner or later, I'll answer it now. What do I think happened in Helsinki? Absolutely mm. nothing. Nothing. Okay. What, what do they What do they talk about for the better part of two hours? Nothing of substance. No agreements were reached. If there were any significant agreements reached, we would have heard about them. There weren't any. I mean, a conversation took place, but but basically nothing happened. So in that sense, other than the fact that apparently they had a fairly friendly chat, right? I mean, I, I kind of get the impression that what many people were disappointed by, and and, and people you know like uh, Trump's national security advisor Bolton and others, is that I think what they wanted to happen was that they wanted him to go in and go into his Donald routine of ranting at Putin. I mean, they wanted to see Putin go. I mean, they wanted to see Trump go in. They wanted to see him behave the way he would. They would say, I don't know, a presidential debate, aggressive, in your face, shaking his finger at Putin. This was what they wanted. They wanted a visual assertion of Trump's and thereby America's dominance. And one that's really not the way that you conduct diplomacy, at least publicly. And it didn't happen. So, to a certain degree. I think Trump is being blamed for having actually gone in and, and behaved himself. I mean, for once, I, mean, I won't say for once, that would be too prejudicial, but let's say <laughs> well, for someone who all too often, for better or for worse, does not behave in what could be called a diplomatic manner, he seems to have done it. And he's now extended a invitation for Putin to come to Washington, which is, you know, in, in the... Very sort of nuanced language of diplomacy. When you invite someone to your country, remember the the, the meeting they had before was in Helsinki. Now, mm, true, neutral, that's right neutral territory, to, neutral territory. It's, it's it's closer to to Russia, that's for sure. But it's kind mm. of in, in Putin's territory. But it's not well. In Russia, but he so was going to be in Europe for the NATO meeting anyway, so it was yeah. just a little hop, and you know so. But he didn't go to Moscow. No. He went to Helsinki. So this wouldn't be a meeting on neutral ground. This would be a meeting in which Vladimir Putin would come to the American capital, would come essentially into Donald Trump's home. This would make him the host. But it also, when you do that, it places – it's the same type of thing. If you're a guest in someone's home, it places you not in a position of inferiority of subordination, but it places you in the position of being a guest. Mm. Okay. It does place you in a slightly 
lesser social plane than your host. Your host is the host. They're the ones who control this is their domain. This is something that you have accepted an invitation to. So that, that's very often why diplomatic meetings are held on neutral ground. Because whichever person appears to be going to the other person's house appears to be <laughs> more passive in the situation. You know, it's like arguing over the shape of the table, who invites it. So the interesting thing to me will be to see if that meeting takes place and whether Putin, I think he probably would, would do that. But remember, for him to do that, he's having to accept that situation. He is going somewhere where he is not the master. He is going somewhere where he is a guest. There's also always that thing when you go to someone else's domain, castle, whatever it is, that there's always the, the vague impression that in some way you're going as a supplicant, right? The person who goes to the other person's house is the one who goes to ask a favor, the one who goes to make Now, are we talking in terms of conventional polity among people, or are we talking statecraft? We're talking both. You know, statecraft is just an extension. It's a somewhat more elaborate method, but well, it, it has a certain. It's like look yeah. at all the things that poor Megan has to jump through with the royal family. It's not just another family. It's so. Is it exactly the same dynamic if you're invited to someone else's house? Because to me, looking at the situation, looking at Putin and the global context of his power base, which is not economic. I mean. Russia is like 30th on our trading partners mm -hmm. in terms of, of you know, interchange. And we have a GNP upwards of 22 trillion. The Russia folks are about one and a half trillion. So his only claim to fame as a world power is to be seen as an equal with the American president. And being invited to the White House, to the Oval Office, gives him politically that equality notwithstanding everything you just said. No, it, it's a position. When you invite someone, it's also an honor which you're extending to them. Yeah. You don't invite everyone. Therefore, and here's the, the guy who's been, behind, you know, the, the new, you know, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, I'll just say it plainly. The, the new form of warfare is cyber. And we hear from every level of the Trump administration, except from the president, that we're under attack daily by the Russians. And there's interesting specifics. Apparently, they've diddled around with nuclear facilities, taken over control, which is shocking because that's how you initiate another Third World War. You know, if you trip off, you know, a couple, three nuke plants around the United States and it can be traced back to, you know, the Russians, that's that's all they wrote. That, that's, that's outright Third World War Three. But so, it hasn't happened. But – They've done the test. We know because of the digital traces, they've been poking around in, you know, as my grandmother would have said, messing in places where they shouldn't be messing. And uh, are, we, are, are we poking around in their nuclear facilities? I don't think so. Are we, are, are we poking? Why wouldn't we be? Why would if we're if we are, why isn't Putin saying anything? The whole Stuxnet thing vis-a-vis -vis Iran, it was pretty clear that we were really messing with their centrifuges through the Internet. All right. Okay. Inserting. And there were people talk about thumb drives taken in and inserted. And, of course, they're in the virus, kind of like a scene out of, you know, Independence Day when they went and rendezvous with the alien spaceship and inserted the virus. But if we were doing to Russia what Russia is doing to us, don't you think that Russia would be in high dudgeon and pointing out every possible infraction? 
No, not if they thought that that was simply the normal way things were done, which I think is pretty much the way the normal ways are done. Everybody spies on everybody, Richard. Spying is if, different. If, if we if we tampering. didn't have people, if we spying, didn't have people, no, wait, 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 Richard, Richard, spying right. is different than tampering. We're talking well, about a ta- way to tampering, actually tampering. How? What? What exactly has been tampered with? See, this this is this term I constantly hear throughout. Someone has meddled in an election. Well, precisely how did the meddling take place? Did well, we someone know now, change we a vote now, on a voting machine? We don't know that. What? We don't know that do at know all. That, do, we, do we know that it happened? The only thing we do know in terms of the state election boards is that they went in, the Russians, these, these 12 guys. My, my guest last night called them knights. I mm-hmm. thought that was a fascinating comparison. Yeah. They went in and they literally – went to the voter registration rolls and downloaded half a million voters' IDs and files and the stuff that you file when you when you register to vote. Half a okay. million. And so how, how did that how did that compromise an election? Well we don't know yet because we don't know the full extent. The the well, degree the hang on, hang on. The degree okay. of the federal investigation of this because remember, as people should should remember, every state is responsible for its own electoral procedures and laws and protocols and all that. Mm-hmm. So you don't have one system. You got fifty. You got to go through. And the cooperation between the feds and the locals has been awful in this scenario. In this problem, I live here in New Mexico. You know, our our Secretary of State says she's had zero help from the Trump administration in trying to address the midterms coming up in four months here and that they have gone they're on their own back to paper ballots. So there's a trail, a paper Good trail. Yeah. And if you can suborn half a million voters and just get rid of them so they never show up on the rolls, well, we have what's where, called, where, there's, where there's half a million voters suborned. Where, we where don't half know. A million people we don't know because it's so opaque. It should be so transparent and it's so incredibly opaque. Because well, there's no, I mean, the Republicans just deep sixed $350 million for assisting the states in this kind of proactive prevention of problems in 2018. Just, no, we don't need that. Gosh, voter security? Who needs to help local states, you know, bump up voter security? This is but it really, all comes back to the fact that no one can give, 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 provide the slightest evidence that anything of substance happened. It's been like rolling disclosure. Every time there's a new story or a new pronouncement, it's gets deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where in the last cavalcade of stories, there apparently was a congressional candidate who turned to the Russians and who asked them to provide dirt on his or her opponent, and the Russians did. Now, what we don't know is who this candidate was, and I guarantee or, or or who the russians were what was the assumption it was that these russians 12 guys involved, it, that, it, it was, that it was every these... person in russia works for vladimir putin that every person in russia is an employee of no i think we're talking the gru they're a well-known spy agency okay oh, it was those guys to the gru i mean i, I you know it, it's it's this is kind of a of a, a pointless argument to get into but the point is is that there's all kinds of accusations that are made. And there are all kinds of scenarios they come up with. But what I don't see is any substantive proof. Have you read this indictment that Mueller came out with on the Friday before the Putin-Trump meeting? Apparently the detail. 
The details and, and, are... And an indictment know. is an accusation. It's not proof. Well, you only get to the proof when you get to a trial. I mean, true, true. We, we, live in a, we live in a day, in a time in which accusation is treated as if it's proof, but it's not. You can accuse anybody of anything. You can accuse, you know, a group right, of intelligence me, me, officers in Russia let, of anything you want. Let me just it on the head. Do right. you think the Russians have interfered with this at all? I don't think that they have interfered with any American elections to any substantial degree. And you base that have, on? I think that. Well, I base it on the fact that the lack of any evidence that they have. Well, we can go all the way back to the Rosenbergs to know that the Soviet Union back then was acting in a very antagonistic manner and did all kinds of things. And that's how we had the Cold War. And then we had the whole nuclear. I mean, we had something like 70,000 warheads oh, well. aimed at each other. In the heyday. Yeah. That's why I have that graph on the uh, radio with pictures but, showing but the, how the number the of Rosenbergs were, were, were involved in stealing nuclear secrets from a military facility. They were mm-hmm. engaged in espionage. They mm-hmm. had nothing to do with electoral roles. Well, or... back then you couldn't do what you can now do with a few keystrokes. Mm-hmm. And what I find fascinating is in this whole environment where there's this pitch, you know, it's like the, the Cold War a la Mitt Romney and the uh, – end of the uh, Obama-Romney uh, election, he brought up the idea that Russia was going to go back to its old habits. And lo and behold, that appears to be basically due to Putin what they've been doing. And now the technology allows you to reach into from across the pole in ways that were unimaginable in the 50s and 60s at the height of the Cold War and really make mischief. And there is a paper trail showing They've been messing with things like nuclear power plants. That's not just spycraft. That's well, act- I, I would I would have to know more about what messing means. See, messing doesn't convey anything. It means any you change programs. Go and you twist dials. You see what you can do if you can remote control. I mean, before the show every night, I I have this computer gone through by a remote process where someone else takes over the computer and looks through things. That's what they're doing. Now, you're saying that we're doing the same thing to the Russians. I don't think so. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't Putin say something then? If we're in a pitched battle for PR, for the high ground, because, politics, the moral high ground, would he because not? Because part t- of it is that if he would know that you were doing that, he doesn't have to tell you that you're doing it. I mean, he has no particular, may not have any particular, but if we, we don't have people who are doing that, then they're not doing their job. That's part of the job of cyber warfare, to test perimeters, to test boundaries, to find ways in. You know, not necessarily do anything once you're in there, but to figure out whether or not you can get in. So, yes, we should certainly be doing that. And I would assume that they would be doing it, and the French and the Israelis and the Iranians and anybody else who can. And you can also also keep in mind the Chinese. Yeah, of course. Everybody spies on everybody. Hmm. For the simple reason that nobody trusts anybody. Right. Okay. So it's, I don't know, with all of these accusations, I mean, really, I think everybody, not just you, but everybody, really needs to calm down. I mean, the, the amount of, of rhetoric at, which, is, which is thrown at this, and it's rhetoric, it's not proof of anything. The which is thrown at it, it just becomes increasingly hysterical. Well, when you say proof, there's never anything solid. When you say, well, there was an awful lot of solid stuff in this indictment Mueller put out against the 12 GRU officers last last week. 
Have you read it? I've skimmed I it. You know, yeah. it looks pretty detailed to me. Well, that's what indictments are supposed to do. No, but it doesn't mean this one. This one is being touted. This one is being touted as being so different than a standard indictment. It's like you know, War and Peace versus uh, uh, Peanuts, the cartoon series. Well, let's see what comes of it. Okay, let's let's not judge the case on an indictment. Let's judge the case as it actually plays out in a court of law, where as opposed to simply proclaiming that you have evidence, you actually have to present the evidence. Well, the only way you can do that is through a trial, and of course, we're not going to get those 12 GRU guys here anytime no, soon. No, which means that Are, you can, which, which is the very reason that you can accuse them of anything, and you never have to substantiate it. Well, the war drums are sounding, <clears throat> he said in a segue. Okay. My guest this morning, Dr. Richard Spence, and as you can see, we do not agree on certain things on this. Mm. And, just at the top of this discussion. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. You're listening to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinsia, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast from Steve's Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server. 
what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies Room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Cynthia posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported in my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has presented far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. from the land of enchantment here in New Mexico on a Sunday night, the 22nd of July, the anniversary weekend, the 49th anniversary weekend of when human beings went to the moon and landed and came home. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're kicking around the idea of uh, well, what could have happened at Helsinki that we don't know about. His position is that nothing happened. Uh, I'm going to kind of hold my position for a little while as we get more data on the table. We've also discussed uh, what's going on with the Russian hacks and propaganda campaigns during the last election and what are they going to be doing and what are they doing in preparation for the midterms coming up in a little less than four months now. And um, he seems to feel that... Uh, there's not much they're doing that's different than what nations normally do. And I think that's somewhat of a gross underestimate of the real situation. Anyway, um, let's bring Richard back on. Richard, let's talk a bit about the background of this. Where is Russia? Where is this old Soviet Union? I looked at a map that you brought uh, to Radio Pictures tonight. If we scroll down your first item... Mm -hmm. And there's an extraordinarily interesting map showing the extent of the Mughal Empire, which, as I said, goes back to the 13th century. Um, Russia, so, Soviets, Russia inheriting all that. I mean, Russia is a huge geographic country stretching across most of the Eurasian continent. And yet they are a piddling nothing in terms of world economy. They have... 
144 million people, that's rounding it up, actually going down year by year by year. And in the next 50 years, they're talking about going down to 130 million. They're brilliant people. I mean, Russian science and physics and astronomy has been cutting edge for for centuries on this planet. Why does Putin preside over a an empire that literally has less economy going for it than the state of New York? Okay. Well, that's an interesting question, and it's one of those we can get into. And the simple point is that what I'm going to try to talk a bit about, and one of the things that we'll come back to this map of the, why the Mongol Empire, but just hold on to that idea, is that one of the things that makes Russia important is its sheer size and its location on the globe. It's not a matter of GDP. So if you want to compare Russia economically, uh, you know, they're sort of in the same club more or less with Brazil, a little behind India, I mean, far behind the EU. I mean, it, it, their, their power is not economic. That's not the basis of it. Well, they point out before the, they have less economy than some of our states like Texas or New York. Yes, yes. But that's not the sole measure of a country's significance. Well, the other measure is, and I, that's why I have the graph up. If right. we go to my yeah. items, number six yep. in Radio with Pictures, the world nuclear forces, we are on parity. You know, we used to have, you know, in the in the 80s, something like 70,000 warheads. Now mm-hmm. we're down to about uh, 7,000. Well, they have 7,000. We have 6,800. And, it's, you know, the, this, this, this uh, uh, report details where they are, where they're stored, how many are active, how many are on high alert, all that stuff. Yeah. We're stretching from 45 to, to this year. So they're basically the only other nuclear power on parity on the planet. We share between us and Russia something like 93% of the world's nuclear stockpiles. So that's what Putin's got in his back pocket. He can destroy Mm -hmm. the planet, and we can destroy the planet. They're they're the only two nations that can do that. The others, even France or Britain, have like a few hundred warheads, can't destroy the planet. We can. So that right there. They can destroy a chunk of it, but they can't destroy the whole thing. No, no. So the idea is that if you if you look at a country, whether it's Russia, the United States, whether it's Zimbabwe or Venezuela, you have to measure it in different ways. So the the economic engine of the country is one thing. What what they what that's based on is another. But then also in terms of military power, from the standpoint. But in that way, it 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 mirrors in a way. Although Russia, in all respects, is less than what the Soviet Union once was, keep in mind that the Soviet Union, even back when we both had these huge nuclear arsenals, at best had an economy that was about a quarter to a third that of the United States. That is, the Soviets ensure economic output, or the way that we measure economic output and the value of that output – was far behind the U.S., yet it was the one country in the world which gave us for a run for our money in everything, including the space race. Remember, initially, while eventually we won the race to the moon, for a long time we were playing catch-up to a country which otherwise oh, was regarded as well. inferior to us. Well, but it, doesn't it also, Richard, right. have to do with priorities, how societies, cultures, countries allocate those right. resources? Yes. Okay, and it depends upon where you put it. I mean, you can say that you know the U.S. has a uh, 
GDP that's eight or nine times that of Russia, at least, but I don't it's know what like they have to show for it. 19.5 times, but anyway. <laughs> 19.5 times. Okay, well, you know, uh, are we all rich? Is everybody in America rich? No, but we have a 600, right. I think at last look, a $600 billion a year defense budget. Yes. You know, we okay. our, our, our defense budget matches that of the 17 next countries in line, Yes, which brings back the question, who's the enemy? Why are we spending uh, an absolute overwhelming fortune of our of our wealth on weaponry that if we use it, we die? Yeah. But weaponry that has to be updated and maintained and. And stockpiled because there's a huge – it's the point that we've made in other discussions before. Nothing is more profitable, not for countries, but for the industries which supply the tools of the trade than war. And why is the it's, word Krupp floating through my mind right now? Krupp is but one <laughs> example of it, and then there are, there are plenty of others, not only the people who produce weapons but those who sell them. Or I can say Lockheed Martin. All right. Lockheed, Lockheed Martin, Martin comes to mind. So look, right. the Cold War spawned a new – was it really that new or was it just on a, on a hyper whatever industry, which is basically war without war? You know, it kind of was new because preceding arsenals ultimately tended to be used. What we, did, what we found in the Cold War was we could create huge arsenals and not use them but make a lot of people rich. Yes, and also by running, by, by running deficits. That is, by continually spending more money than you take in, you could acquire even more. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's what, uh, if we go back here, some of the listeners may be familiar, that when Dwight uh, Eisenhower was stepping down as president in 1960, he gave a talk where he warned about something called the military-industrial complex. Yep. And he noted that one of the things that he noted in that, you can easily find that on the web if you want to read it, but one of the things he noted is that prior in, our, in America's prior history, we had not had a situation that you know, we would build it for a war, whether it was the Civil War or it was the First World War, but then we built down after that. We did not maintain a large peacetime military establishment. And that, that's one of the things I find that, that the many people, you know, particularly students I have, take for granted, which isn't true. Up till World War II, the United States overall was one of the least militarized countries on earth. We maintained yeah, that's why the Japanese for our felt, size. That's why the Japanese felt they could get away with it, right? A small army. We, may, we maintained a, a much larger naval presence than we did an army. And part of it was because the only two potential enemies we could see we had at the time was Canada and Mexico, <laughs> neither of which seemed to present a major threat. But the other point of it was that Congress wouldn't put any money into it. I mean, there's, there's a whole interesting – if you look at it, is that the one thing that they that there was no – uh, you know, apparently there weren't enough uh, munitions and armament companies and tech, tech companies supplying uh, military goods to have enough lobbyists to convince senators that their election campaign needed their support. But it was. It didn't exist after that. So remember, what, what Eisenhower is discussing in 1960 is something that's only lasted really since the end of World War II. It's only been around for 10 or 15 years. And he realizes, and keep in mind, he is a military man. This is a man yep. who knows the military, who spent his entire life within it, 
And yet he is warning that now we are in a situation where there is a kind of, we have this kind of vague permanent state of war, and this is creating a military industrial complex which is continuing to feed on itself and is beginning to dominate policy. Now, we come back to the question you posed a little bit earlier. Who's the enemy? One of the things that a military industrial complex must always have is an enemy because there always has to be a threat against which these weapons are a safeguard in which you are supplying. If you don't have an enemy, then you don't have a market. Okay. So whether or well, not, whether, even if you don't have an enemy, it is necessary to invent one. See, what's interesting is that uh, in March, I think during his run-up to the campaign for his camp for, for presidency, Putin's campaign, mm -hmm. he gave a press conference, which I watched in its entirety, where he trotted out a whole series of really paradigm-shifting, groundbreaking, if they're real, you know, game-changing weapon systems, mm -hmm. hypersonic aircraft, nuclear-powered missiles. Uh, you know, drones that cannot be caught, some, some kind of a torpedo that could be launched that would basically create a tsunami on the East Coast and take out everything from Boston to Miami. I mean, this was, this was initiated by Vladimir Putin running for the presidency in a field of one in the former Soviet Union. And now he's mad that apparently somebody leaked these plans to the West and they launched this raid on one of their own space centers on on Friday, trying to yeah. find the Western spies who stole their hypersonic, ultra-sophisticated 21st-century planet-busting weaponry. Well, in other words, it looks like it looks like the pendulum swinging back to from just cyber to cyber plus technology and nuclear weaponry. Sure, and of course there should be people who were trying to steal that, wouldn't you? <laughs> if if you thought. If you thought even someone who you consider to be your ally was coming up with some sort of groundbreaking weapon that might well, I just think the timing. I mean, look, 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 look at the timing. Look at the All timing. Right. Yes, All right. it's okay. four days after Helsinki. We're supposed yeah. to be entering this new era where Donald Trump, you know, will see no evil, believe no evil, smell no evil, speak no evil, whatever, and Putin goes and tries to arrest people, accusing them of being Western spies. Three days later. Okay. Well, Western spies, now what does that cover? Who could potentially be Western spies? Well, apparently there's Russians working in this facility, and there's a current yeah. guy who's missing. The only problem is he's missing and he didn't have access to any of this information. I didn't have a yeah. chance to really read right. down so, the story. Well, uh, let's put it this way. The, the people who might have been suborned or in other ways recruited in order to do the spying may be Russians. But behind it, let's say, is as a Western spy agency. Sure, I would assume now, the CIA. Ah, but what if it's not the CIA? There are lots of Western spy agencies. The Germans, the British, NATO as a whole. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'll, I'll give you, a, you know, this again is just speculative, but I'll give you a counter explanation of what happened here. Before Trump met with Putin, who did he meet with? Angela Merkel and the, the NATO crowd. And NATO crowd. And, and how did that meeting go? Not very well. Not very well. Depending he, he, upon you know, who you hear of, from, 
In fact, you know, according, according to Trump, point, it, according to Trump, it went incredibly well because they're all coughing yeah. up more money. You know, according to because NATO he itself, threatened that if they didn't, he was going to pull out. Except Macron then came out with a press release saying nothing has changed. The 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 what is it? Two percent by twenty twenty four has remained on the table. Is exactly what they're doing, and nothing that Trump did at NATO had any effect at all. Except he came home and said, "What happened didn't happen." In other words, they're ignoring him. But at one point, didn't he actually say that the EU was hostile to the United States? Also that keep was, in mind that was on that his trip he, is from in, he is engaged in a trade war with the yeah, EU. Yeah, he, he, he was going from Britain to Turnberry in Scotland, waiting two yeah. days before the meeting on Monday with uh, Putin. And that's when he said the EU was our primary foe. Yes. So what might then be the cost or the interest to Donald Trump or to someone around Donald Trump to make it known to the Russians that they are being that one of their nuclear facilities has been compromised by the Germans or the British or the French that our foes the European Union are spying upon our potential friends the Russians yeah except Russia is not Western a potential friend it's invaded countries. It's invaded countries by oh, – look at what it's done in the elections all over the European continent. This cyber stuff they did with us was only a pale vestige of what they've been doing regularly for Richard, five years. Okay. Uh, the, I mean look the at United Macron's States, election. The United States has interfered in elections around the world for decades. We've done exactly the same thing. There is no higher moral position that we can hold in that. We have overthrown elected governments. Now, true, Allende might have been a Marxist and maybe should have been overthrown, but we overthrew him. We murdered him. So that's, you know, the way the world works. There was a car bomb in Washington in that era. I don't think yeah. it was him. I think it was one of his people, but it was a – and then I forget what happened in, in um, Chile. Uh, we overthrew an elected government. Which led to Organized Pinochet and, oh my God. Which led what to a, Pinochet and it's well, a whole a thing in terms of Operation Condor and, you know, and remember yeah. then we had some pesky Marxists. Okay, that was then, this is now. Okay. If we're looking at a rapprochement, okay. I mean, during, during the Obama years, they talked about the reset button, trying to reset relations with, you know, Russia. And Putin was not very thrilled and actually did things that uh, normal nations should not do, like invading other countries. Which Ukraine? other countries did he invade? Ukraine. Ukraine. Well, he took Crimea. Although he could argue there was a referendum in Crimea, which uh, well, voted the to join Russia. Afterwards, when he was trying to, well, to you know, what's, what's the word that I'm looking for? To try to cover up, you know, paper over, paper over what he had done, which was a naked military invasion. Under the excuse that, oh, there's Russians in Crimea. I mean, this could go on and on and on and on. The point is that Putin has been a bad boy. The international community put on sanctions. Sanctions were the death to the Russian economy. That and the tumbling oil prices. But it hasn't get, died. What? But the, the Russian economy has not died. No, but it's people on are not, People are not starving in Russia. But it's on life it support. And, and the population extrapolations by the UN say that in you know, 50, 30 years, something like that, they'll have one-tenth less than the population they have now. People are leaving Russia 
because there's no opportunity they perceive. Yeah, at least but, but the, the populations of almost all European countries are declining. There's nothing special about Russia. Yeah, but the European economies are going gangbusters compared to Russia. Well, for the time being, but their populations are still declining. So economy and population are not linked, which, of course, is obvious because technology makes any individual yeah. thousands of times more productive than just a human being by themselves. So it's technology. Why is Russia so behind technologically that they cannot be in the top four or five? They're down number 30. Given that incredible vast panoply of res I mean, look at that map. I want to come back to the map because I want to start at the beginning okay. of this discussion. That map okay. shows that, you know, Russia owning a huge chunk of real estate on the planet. And when I was growing up, real estate was the thing you're supposed to value above everything else because real estate okay. could be counted on. It was riches, you know, stuff buried in the ground, places to grow stuff on, places to and live a on. a huge amount of material there. So why this you posed an interesting question is that considering that Russia occupies only slightly less territory really than the USSR about one sixth of the world's land area. I think it goes through seven or eight time zones. So why isn't it? Yeah, you know, why isn't it the richest country on earth? You know that is exactly the question that the Tsar's Minister of Finance, a guy by the name of Sergei Vite, asked himself in 1891. Oh, good old Sergey! I haven't heard him in a while. Sergey, Sergey Vite. <laughs> so he wanted he wanted to know the same thing. And, and, and in eighteen ninety one, Vite had an answer to that, which still it, and he one of the things he realized is that well, size in a way was part of a strength of the Russian Empire. It was also a tremendous weakness because it meant that you had to carry that the trans the, the cost and the difficulty for instance the need the, the ability to build roads and railways to connect hmm. this vast territory was immensely greater it was than in small countries i mean the easiest thing to do would be to compare germany with russia and you see the huge difference in size yeah and, and the in point economy is, is that and if economy. you want if you want to build a railway all the way across germany if you want to connect munich and the rhineland and berlin by railways and with roads if you want to transport goods if you want to move coal to where the iron ore is and vice versa it's a relatively short distance in russia it's a huge distance which vastly magnifies the difficulty of getting to things and then also the cost of exploiting them so back in 1891, what Vitti's argument was, he looked at Europe and he looked at Russia and he goes, well, here's the big problem. They have a lot of railroads and we don't. We can't, get, we can't exploit our mineral resources because they're locked up in a mountain range in the taiga somewhere next to the Arctic Circle and we have no means of getting to them. And if we could get to them, we would have to then to have a further means to refine them. So – Russia, in terms of an industrial revolution, really only got going in the 1890s. It, it started well behind Germany, much further behind Britain and France. And so the Russians were always in this, in this position of trying to play catch-up, of industrializing. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that has certainly shaped the whole modern historical experience, and part of many ways the kind of Russian historical identity, is this question of backwardness. Right. And and that, embodied in that answer is the idea of Russian mindset, how they view the world okay. and their place in the world, right? So, all right. 
So let's let's look at this map of the Mongol Empire, not the Russian Empire, but the Mongol Empire. Okay, click it on roughly, it. It gets it gets bigger, okay. and then you click it's, on it again, and it doesn't do anything. But it's very big in the uh, when you click on it. Well, what you can see here is it's the you know we've got our uh, our friend the Eurasian continent and and northern part of Africa, and over on the left is Europe with all of its peninsulas. Remember, Europe is a peninsula on a peninsula on a peninsula and some islands, mm -hmm. and then all far over in the east you see the other islands, Japan. Now. The Mongol Empire had its center closer to China, but what this map shows, if you look at the colored areas, it shows that at its greatest extent, around 1279, sometime around 1300, what I want people to look at in this map is to notice that the Mongol Empire, an Asiatic empire, later, in fact, under Kublai Khan, which would establish its capital in Beijing, all right, so this was an empire whose economic and political capital was in the Far East, stretched all the way to the borders of Europe. Now, if you go and look over in Europe, what you notice is that, you know, notice that Italy and Spain, even the Baltic states, you can see uh, Scandinavia up there, they're, they're, they're not part of the Mongol Empire. But right next to them, just to the east of that is, and that is the heartland of Russia. So one of the points I wanted to make with this map you mean the area that's marked in lighter brown? In lighter just to, brown. Just, just to the east of, of Europe. Right. Okay. That is Russia, which means that in 1279 you – you, you mean that's inhabited Russia, and the rest of that vast territory has maybe five jackrabbits and a, a Indian well, every – thousand miles that, that that's the heartland of where russia begins okay so the heartland of russia is not siberia siberia is kind of a with an apology to siberians a vast howling wilderness full of trees snow and giant bears mm. but, but russia i mean I the area in, in which in which the russian people and in which the russian culture develops is that light sort of brown area east of europe sort of north of the Black Sea, you know, where Ukraine, Russia, Belarus is now. That, that's okay. where those, – those are the original principalities, and those areas in the 1200s were conquered and for 250 years dominated by the Mongol Empire or its successors. That is, Russia is the only area of Europe that spent much of its history or an early part of its history as an appendage to an Asiatic empire. Hmm. All right. That probably now, does something to how you see the world. Yeah, all right. And one of the things that did, so, so what are the differences between the two? And I have well, I'll tell you what, hang, hang on, hang on. We, yeah. This is a sure. long, interesting backstory. We want to, you know, um, short, short change it. So, Let's kind of hold our horses. We're at the uh, top of the hour. Let me check. Yes, we are top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're talking about the origins of Russia and the Russian mindset and why maybe they look at the world differently than Germans or Americans or Brits. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.